Welcome to a new episode of the Miss Education Podcast from Las Vegas. MGM Grand, Albert Kim, Tommy Chang, Brian Lin. Yep, in Vegas. Love of basketball. Recording an episode of NBA Summer League. So we're sitting in a hotel room at the MGM. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Vegas, gentlemen. So far, so good. Celebrating the National Basketball Association Summer League. So a couple years ago, we were motivated and inspired by Johnny Juzang in March Madness. And our love of basketball continues. Who besides Wimby are you most excited to see? You were talking about how many Asian American cats are there? So there's three Asians and Asian Americans. One of them is Jalen Williams, who was drafted last year, is on Oklahoma City Thunder. Drafted this year, Kai Soto, Filipino-American, drafted to the Orlando Magic. And then on the 76ers, he's on our summer league roster, wasn't drafted, but Hyunjin Lee. They are three of a growing wave of Asian basketball players that are going to really come into the NBA. And in the next three or four years, I think you're going to see a pretty big influx of Asian-American women come into the WNBA because there are a lot of D1 Asian-American women who are killing it. So very hopeful. What percentage of the Asian-American wave into men's basketball comes from Orange County? (laughs) I think we've been brainwashed to think our strengths that we should be more balanced. Being a workaholic. Yeah, you, you take a lot of pride in it, right? Yeah. When you're younger, and but there's so much you lose out on yeah. when you live your life that way. Yeah, and like it's all about balance, and well, we could say that at this stage, right? But oh, like, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, at 26, what, how are you going to the stage? What do you mean at this stage in life? At least stage in our career, because at 26, it's not the same. So this can be a topic, which is it's summer vacation summer break, however you want to describe it. Why can't a 26-year-old, a mid-20-year-old chill in the summer? Why? Because I think there's judgment imposed on that 26, 27-year-old, let's say, investment banker by their boss. Like, why It's not just judgment, there are consequences to that. Yeah. To that judgment that don't apply to us now. Yeah. Right? Like, the bottom line is we still live in a capitalistic- Sure. Sure. <laughs> society. And so there's decisions that we can make now. That if we had made it 26, there'd be consequences too. Mm-hmm. And there's this, you are looked up by your peers and by others, right? When you're a workaholic. I think at this stage, I could care less. Like I'm... Is that just age or it's because you've hit a certain level in your career and life? I think part of it is that I don't want my identity to be dictated by how hard I work in my job. Yeah. Like I want my identity to be dictated by other things or I can have multiple identities. And I think when you're 26 years old, I get it. You're racking up your accolades. You're racking up your experiences on your LinkedIn page because all that stuff matters. But in the long run, I think as you, what this book, it's this Arthur C. Brooks, he's the author from Strength to Strength, what he argues for is you get to a certain point in life, you biologically, you just don't function the same way as you did at a younger age. Yeah. You, you can't. And so you've 
got to look at other sorts of strengths. So you're moving from one set of strengths to another set of strengths. But isn't that to some degree the thing that we're trying to rally against, which is when you're young, hustle, burn the fuck out, right? That's what a lot of young, particularly Asian people struggle with is they hustle, they hustle, they hustle. And at some point they just like, they burn out. I actually, are you going to tell a 26 year old not to hustle? No, I'm not. I'm not. I just feel like I, I'm not either. Eat, pray, love. To. Eat, pray, love, bro. <laughs> Hey, look, what's the NBA the NBA analogy for this? Like, you're a young player, you gotta go hard, go all the extra hours, all the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and you get to a certain point, time. yeah, you're gonna go or you're gonna do the turnaround jumper. You're gonna push off, do the turnaround jumper, and that'll be your play. You're not gonna drive to who you gotta you know. rack up those XP when you're younger, like in everything. So yes, if you are on the all star all NBA team track. But if you're not, you know what I mean? How many people at, like, keep saying 20, I don't know, whatever reason we're stuck on this 26, but how many 26 year olds <laughs> are going to go, yeah, I'm not on that track? Immediately, you know that. I think there's a lot. Really? Yeah. I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot who are not necessarily, my career is not going to get to a certain place. I think there's a lot who are like, I don't like this. I don't like the hustle. I don't sure. like the grind. I don't want my life to be this way, but my family, my elders, my mentors, other Asians are telling me this is the path and telling me to hustle when I'm young. And so they, they just do it. But I feel like there's a lot of folks who are just like, not necessarily tied to their trajectory, but just, this is a lifestyle I don't particularly enjoy. Yeah. I appreciate the, that framing. I think it's for me, it's more about the pushing people to try to figure out what it is, what's true to them, mm -hmm. which could be that, which could be the hustle, which could not be. Because for me, yeah, we've talked about it on this. I just spent too long, too much of my life mm -hmm. not allowing myself or not feeling like I could decide what was yeah. right for me, where if with a different path, I might feel differently about it now, but only having my own experience just left to my own devices at 26, even at 30, I don't trust that I would have mm. found my way to, oh, this, I would have been able to acknowledge this is my lane and I'm going to do what I need to do to like succeed in this lane. That wasn't my experience. And I, yeah. I don't know how I would have done it if someone had given me those words and given me that power. Like, yeah, you can choose. Like, is this true to you? Is this true to you? I don't think I could answer that. Do you think if you, even at a young age, even starting middle school or upper elementary, you were given a lot of choice. And given a lot of feedback for those choices when you got to college or when you're in early 20s, what do you have been better equipped to make those decisions? I can't answer that because when I think back to those times, we've talked to a lot of guests here who were like, as teenagers, I knew already, this is my passion. I'm going to find a way to do this. They may not have known exactly what they were going to do, but there were certain things that were clear to them about what they wanted. I did not have that. And looking back on it, Maybe I would have found it under different circumstances, but I didn't. And the circumstances under which I grew up didn't necessarily nurture that anyways. And so it's hard for me to say, well, if only my parents or my teachers or whoever had done this, then I could have done that. I can't look back at it and say that that would happen. Even in that sort of perspective, we're still talking about kind of the end destination, right? 
did I know where I wanted to be or where I might end up? But I think my point is less, yeah, I think at any age, how sure can you be about where I'm going to be 10, 15, 20 years from now? It's less about that. It's more just like my relationship to the journey that I'm going to take on whichever path I'm on. And I feel like there's the old immigrant Asian mentality, which is just hustle yourself to death. That is the great sacrifice. You hustle yourself to death. And then those of us that are children of immigrants who benefit, who've benefited from that, we see it, we honor it. Some of us deep down have, or maybe not that deep down, have trauma from it, have a love-hate relationship from it. A lot of us don't want to perpetuate it, but we do. And so what I'm saying is like, then for the generation coming behind us, it's like, yeah, y'all, like actually hustle yourself to to the bones hustle yourself to death no matter what the destination is i feel like that relationship is different what i'm saying is i don't think we live in a culture or an economy where everybody can just be about the journey or everybody will just be about the journey i don't think the journey is the it's certainly not the norm, but I don't think it can be the norm and i don't think it's a desire for a lot of people or like what a lot of people will allow themselves to open themselves up to like the journey idea. I feel like that's still the push that we get a lot culturally. You watch these shows where people are coaching queer eye, right. And Karamo like starts off is always trying to talk to people about focusing on the journey. And there's that step back and there's the value of stepping back and appreciating the journey once you've been through some shit. Yeah. But I don't think we live in a space where from an early age, we can just say, focus on the journey. Everybody's about the journey and that's going to yield success mm-hmm. or happiness. The American identity was founded on Puritan Calvinist ideals, yep. which was all about work your way to heaven. Like it's hustle, hustle, hustle. And our economy is designed and our systems are designed in that way. We are addicted to work. Christianity is still the dominant religion here. It's, yeah, but you know, it doesn't have see, the same impact, but it's still the dominant religion. I agree on that point, but I disagree on that being the fuel for a lot of Asian folks. Because for us, that doesn't come from Christianity. That comes from Confucius. <laughs> from the Confucian system. <laughs> there it is. There could right? be. Because I think like it's the, a, probably a everybody drink. Probably a right. little bit of all that. that. But it's like the you get what you put in mentality. Do you think that's why for many affluent Asian immigrants, the system in America makes sense to us? Yeah. 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 We've joked about this on previous episodes. It's the illusion of meritocracy in America for a lot of Asian immigrants is like, oh, we've been doing this shit for thousands of years. Y'all can't do this better than us. Right? And so the, oh, I just need a good test score? Bet easy, right? That doesn't come from affluent. That's just baked into a lot of particularly East Asian cultures where their whole schooling systems are like, yeah, you in high school take one test and that whole test basically dictates where you go for the next 10, 15 years of your life. Oh, it's the rest of your life. Right. So It's your career. Yeah. But at what point do we actually begin to explore an alternate path? Like, How about your experience? Because you're raising a daughter yeah. that, based on what we've talked about, you want her to view the world very differently. Oh, from, and she does. Yeah. 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 It's wild. My wife and I, 
talked about this the other day. So we went on vacation. And since we had a kid, when we go on vacation, it could be local or it could be wherever, it's just easier to go to a hotel that has a kitchen, right? Like when you have a kid, you know, it just makes everything so much easier. And so they're not necessarily super fancy places, but they're suites or villas that have a kitchen in addition to the hotel room. So my daughter has only basically stayed in hotels that are large and have kitchens. So that's when we travel, that's her normal association. <laughs> and so like the as other- As opposed to where we're staying right now. <laughs> exactly. As opposed to the tiny hotel room that we're staying in right now. But it's funny because like, when we're going on our vacation last week, she was like, oh, are we staying in a suite? This is how she worded it. Are we staying in a suite? And we're like, yeah, why? And she's like, oh, because I only like staying in suites. Oh my God. Right. And so again, my daughter's seven years old. In the way she thinks about vacation, the normalcy of vacation, of going to places like Hawaii. Like I never went on, I, till this day, I've never traveled on a plane with my parents. Never. To this day. So we've met, we've traveled on separate planes to go to the same destination, but I've never went on vacation with my parents. You just don't want to take out as two a, generations like him. Right. You don't want plane, right? No, 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 even as a kid. Really? I never did. Yeah. What? Yeah. Never rode on a plane with my family. Sure. Yeah. And it was just because we never went on vacation other than the drive to Grand Canyon. Of course. Mm -hmm. Right. The obligatory <laughs> LA Asian immigrant drive to like Yosemite, Yellowstone, Grand That's Canyon. Right. That's right. Those were our vacations, but we never went to anywhere fancy. We never went to Hawaii, never went to anywhere. We never went to New York, never got on a plane. So that my daughter has already been on planes thinking about, oh, I only like to stay in hotel suites for her. Going to Hawaii is like a normal thing. I feel very good and it terrifies me because it's so different. And so that's the thing. When she's older now, how much of hustle culture do I want her to participate in? That's an open question for me. If she's 21 years old, mm -hmm. she's a senior in college and she comes to you and says, I don't know what I want to do. Yeah. I just want to spend a couple of years trying to figure myself out. Yeah. For you, you're going to support her? Yeah, I think my the process will be my initial reaction fueled by Soju and my ancestors' fury will be, no, you cannot. <laughs> you absolutely cannot. But then after that moment, I'll be like, okay, what's actually best for her? Yeah. And yeah, if I have the means and we're in the circumstance where we can support something like a gap year or a trip, or if she's like, oh, I want to go back to Korea. I want to live in Korea for a year. I'm like, how can I say no to that? I would have loved to have done something like that when I was That's right. younger. And I just, I couldn't. That was never even an option. I didn't even volunteer. So the conditions under which she's deciding to take some time would matter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because I think part of it is like, to your point, we worked this hard, we hustled. And then the question for me is like, for what purpose ultimately? And for a lot of Asian folks, we think about generations. To get and to so, this podcast. That's, yeah, that's why. And our next generation is my daughter. So if she can enjoy the fruits of my wife and I's labor, then what was the purpose of this all to begin with, you know? I also am a big believer, like you're hustling to do what, right? right? hustling to build a capital for 
this bank feels very different than right. hustling to try to solve something. I think there's also, I would take great pride yeah. in seeing the next generation hustle, but hustling for the right reasons, yeah. right? Yeah, because so for a lot of us, the mentality was fueled by survival. You're hustling to survive. Well, what happens when that type of more visceral, basic survival is no longer right. a priority? And it's okay. Now, what does thriving look like beyond basic survival? If my daughter is still preoccupied with the survival questions when our circumstances don't require her to, then I'm like, that we kind of failed. For me, I feel like would have been missing the point. I feel like there's a larger conversation here about moving beyond survival mode into potential thriving mode. And when you're in that mode, that's also a sense of abundance mm -hmm. that can also beget comfortability yeah. and complacency. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> and then you get a lot of people who act like douchebags because they don't feel like there's any threat of anything. I mean, and so, but that's always going to come with it. There's always going to sure. be a part of the population but it, that does it too. But I'm saying like when we were growing up, maybe we viewed it as douchebaggery, but maybe that's actually the goal though. To be entitled? But I don't think it's necessarily entitlement, right? I think if you come from survival and then get to that stage, it's more likely that you're not going to be entitled. But there's a lot of people that are in that stage or have been in that stage for a long time or were born into that stage that are entitled. And I think that's what I mean is like right. from larger. But what I'm saying though is like, but isn't in shorter words, isn't that the goal, right? To make it to a place where your kids can actually grow up to be entitled douchebags. So I think about it like succession, right? There's always the story of that generation that made it and they killed it and they're doing incredibly well. And their kids, because they benefited off their the sweat equity of their family, just grew up in a way different environment. So their relationship to survival is distant. Right. Right. And so like- and but, that, but that's why is that the goal? Because you don't want your kids to be fueled by, if I don't work this extra minute, I'm going to lose everything because- Yeah, but those are extremes. Right? I, think, I feel like there is, again, not being a parent, there should be an element of- you're not just going to be fine. You're not just going to believe you're going to be fine regardless of what you do. That's where it comes into, into, into play, right? Is yes, you don't want your kids to have to go through the same shit. And if I'm going to have kids, I don't want my kids to believe no matter what I do, I'm going to be fine because that is what begets douchebaggery, right? Is it Shaq that said he's not giving anything to his kids? He's got all this shit yeah, in the but world. That's, They've but, been raised in a different environment for sure. Yeah. But like, and that's not the same reality. But this concept of, no, you're not just going to get Regardless of what you decide, you're not just going to be taken care of fully for the rest of your life. And my mom talks about this Taiwanese saying that wealth does not live on beyond three generations. generations. Three, yeah, 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 three yeah, generations. Yeah, three generations. Uh, and so I think that's what you're speaking to. Like, I hear that as well. Yeah. You're, if, but what if you're the first in that three generations? Well, I think the goal then is like, how do you last longer than sure, those three right. generations, yeah. right? How do you teach the right type of hustle yeah, right. to ensure that, yes, that wealth stays. See, because if the only goal is, I just don't want my kids to worry about anything that I worried about, I think that's short-sighted and that ends with unintended consequences. I, I think it works both ways. I think 
douchebaggery is a little hyperbolic, right? But for me, this is a conversation I have with my friends all the time. Like we laugh and we're terrified. It's like, oh, our kids are bougie as fuck, right? Like some of our kids, because again, we didn't grow up with a lot. And so everything we didn't have, we want to give to our kids. Of course. Experiences, items, lifestyle. So our kids are growing up very differently than we do. And so instead of just looking at the bouginess as a negative thing, for us, it's a negative thing because we were always looking at it outside in. But for our kids, there's also a freedom and a creativity and a something else that we honestly don't really know because we didn't live it, that they are going to extract from their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not saying that I'm like fully on board with there needs to be a whole generation of bougie ass Asian kids, not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is like, I feel at the same time as an older generation, not the immigrant generation, but the next from immigrant generation, we're trying to do both things at the same time. And it's very, it's not clean. It's not easy, you know? And we're in a lot of ways, I could see trauma from the immigrant experience that a lot of us are living out. I want to pass down the lessons of the immigrant story. I don't want to pass down the trauma of the immigrant story. You know what what I mean? I think as you're talking about it, it's more clear. Yeah. What I'm hearing is you want her to feel like, look, there's a lot of possibilities I have. I do not have to hustle just to survive. Right. If I choose to hustle, this is what I'm going to hustle for. Like you are providing her opportunities and choice and empowerment. Very different from being a douchebag. That's right. Thank God we have like 300 consistent listeners because if we have a lot more, some of our messages could be easily like, no, no, no. I misinterpreted. No, I contend if all the, of our generation, (laughs) if we were to have convening of all the parents and we were like, yo, let's just keep it all the way 100. How many of your kids are bougie? Everybody will raise their hand. (laughs) If they did it, they'd be lying, man. Come on. All of our friends who have kids, we see them on Instagram. We see them on Facebook. The experiences that they're having, the vacations they're taking, where they're living. It's like, those are all great things. Yeah. But their kids are growing up way different than when they did. It's it's such an interesting point. Right. So again, for me, I don't wear that as a badge of shame. Oh, my daughter has bougie tendencies because that's exactly what I worked to give her. So I can't be like, oh, I'm so proud. I'm so happy that you think about this and I can't hate it at the same time. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't work. So true. From the ages of like six to 18, my dad took me to like three baseball games and my stepdaughter and I went to 20 Dodgers games a year. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like a different level. You're Yeah. yeah. They get to experience so many more things and were they like, what is that going to do for them? Yeah. Yeah, it isn't. I'm still sitting on this idea of, <clears throat> I don't want kids. my kids to experience any of these things I ex- had to experience. Like the, I had to, the negative <clears throat> aspects of it. Cause it's not the first time I've heard it, but in light of recent conversations with friends who are parents in this conversation, it's just, it's sitting in my brain because there's part of it that feels like I understand the idea of it and maybe it's the execution of it that matters mm-hmm. because I've definitely heard it from other people 
when they say, I don't want my kids to worry about anything that I had to worry about, that feels a little like when we talk about you running away from something instead of running t- towards something. Yeah. And that's less about learning about my kid and how do I set them up to be, to go the direction they want and more about everything is about their existence not being what mine was. That can also be short-sighted or narrow-minded. I think up until that last statement about it being short-sighted or narrow-minded, because so I feel like one thing that I see on socials and I've seen it amongst friends, it's like a lot of black people talk about, I am my ancestor's wildest dreams. Sure. Yep. Right. And that is a legacy spanning back, you know, way, way, way back. And I feel like in the Asian, particularly Asian immigrant community, there's a very similar sentiment, except no generation has yet to own, I am that dream. You know what I mean? So it's like, we're always still moving towards the generation that is the dream. For me, the question is, which generation actually gets to claim, I am that dream? So it's like, but my, why does it have to be? Like, it's the whole 99 ranch thing, right? 99%. Is there ever actually 100%? But that an actual goal. But what I'm saying is that who gets to claim it? And for me, the question is, why doesn't my daughter get to claim it? Like, my parents moved here from Korea. They gave up everything to come here to make a better life. They envisioned a life. That life, I did not experience. That life that they dreamed of is what my daughter is experiencing. So for me, then, it's like my daughter is my parents and their parents' wildest dream. She is the manifestation of their immigrant journey. So every now generation that follows my daughter is a continuation, right? It just can't be this perpetual searching, like, nope, it's not me. It's not you. It's not the next, right? Like, we can't just be this continual hustle. At some point, somebody should be able to claim, like, yeah, what my ancestors dreamed about. This is it. This is what I'm living. I think that's where you're hitting on it, on where, like, I think we operate fundamentally differently. Because for me, there's a discomfort with the idea of I've arrived. Because to me, that necessarily leads to complacency of, like, then what am I going to work toward? So not to say that like that's how everybody operates or that's how everybody should operate, but I think that is where it's disconnected for me because what you're talking about, I get the sense of there's a pride to it and there's a working towards it and there's an accomplishment to it. And I think f- for me, in getting to that stage, there, I, I lose a sense of motivation to do more or to do anything else. Mm. I'm, my brain space is a little different. My question is for you, Albert, you want her to claim that she's arrived, arrived at what? Arrived at a place where she has any opportunity she wants, arrived at a place where she's not having to hustle in order to live day to day. What is it that she gets to claim? I think that is the ultimate freedom. That is the dream is that she gets to claim her own story, that her life is a legacy of the Asian immigrant experience, but she is not an Asian immigrant. Her proximity to the Asian immigrant experience is distant. 
And so I want her to honor her grandparents on both sides. And I want her to understand the sacrifice. But at some point, the whole purpose of that is to start something different and unique. Yeah. And so for me, it's not about me claiming for her, this is where the new beginning is and your life is going to look like this. For the first time, a generation in the Kim family can be like, I can decide, knowing everything I know about my family's history and legacy, though I can decide where I want to go from here and not feel pressured or driven by the things that aren't a reality for me anymore. Yeah. They're not, right? Yeah. We were talking about all the kind of the explosion of Asian content. And I was sharing with y'all earlier. So I took my daughter to watch Elemental, the new Pixar movie. And I had literally no clue what this movie was about. My daughter had watched a couple trailers on YouTube and on TV. And it just looked really cool. And she was like, she was very excited. So I was like, yeah, like I'm free this afternoon. Let's go. So I had no expectations. In the first 10 minutes, I was kind of shell-shocked because I was like, why the fuck am I watching a documentary about Asian immigrants? In New York City. Yeah, in New York City. In New York City. And I was like, what, why am I watching the fire people in Queens looking in Manhattan? It was really trippy. And maybe I should have done a little bit of homework, <laughs> but it just totally caught me off guard. But the director is a Korean American. That's right. And he wrote a lot of that story based on his own experience. But one of the themes in that movie, which is a very common theme in a lot of Asian stories, is how do we honor the generation above us or the generations that preceded us without being trapped by the same things that trapped them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to go in two different directions, but I think building on what you hope for your daughter. I feel like you want your daughter to define her own happiness. You don't want her to have to work super hard to do what she wants to do in order to be happy. She has choice. Right. She has agency. And I think that's a very beautiful thing. About this comment about elementals, like the story you just shared, even a short 12 months ago, no way Albert Kim would have gone into the movie and not realized that it was a movie about Asian American That's right. experience. Yeah. And we are at a point yeah. where it's part of mainstream yeah, media. Absolutely. That's right. incredible. That, I was also amazed where I was like, Korean American brother was a director of this film, wrote this film, and I literally had no idea about it. <laughs> because Asian content is just everywhere now, which is great, which is awesome. But the experience was kind of this disembodied experience where and we were watching it in 3D so I was already like a little fucked up right (laughs) but I was just like 10 minutes in I was like wait a second what is this movie about what the hell is happening we have to watch this now trippy it was trippy yeah I just thought it was about fire and water too on the way home though we were in the car and we're talking about the movie and you know for her she loved it she thought the movie was great and whatever and I was explaining to her, you know, Harmony Harabaji, grandmother, grandfather on both sides. That was their experience. Mm. They came here. It was also like the movie is very much a father-daughter movie too. And so there's these themes. And I was sharing that with her. And she's seven. Some she can process, some she can't. But I was like, I don't want her to be burdened by her grandparents' sacrifice. Yep. Like yep. that just, again. That resonates. I'm dealing with that my wife is dealing with that does my daughter does she have to keep it 
Does it have to be a burden? Can there be appreciation of it? Or would you rather it just not be part no, of it? No, no, no. The acknowledgement and appreciation of the history. But our generation, let's be real. So many of us are still struggling through the burden and the trauma and the pain and the how do we act? Yep. And how do I reconcile? Like, I want to do music. I don't want to run the store. That literally is in the movie. Yeah. And so you acknowledge the history. You celebrate the sacrifice. But you don't have to pay the sacrifice forward. It's been paid, right? Mm. Yeah. Literally in this moment, you've got how many movies in the movie theaters yeah. about Asian American experience? You yeah. have past lives, yeah, mentals. You have Joyride, Coming, right? Yes, Which yes. is like a raunchy comedy, but also about a very serious subject about yeah. adoptees trying to find their birth parents. That's right. And beef. then a lot of people are watching Beef. Beef, beef, great Netflix show. You've got Warrior, right? You and have you got American-born Chinese. American a lot of content out Kung there. Kung Fu still is going yep. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. a little bit wild. And it's at a point where I can't keep up. Mm -hmm. Right? Great. Yeah. You had a K-pop band headline Coachella this year. You had like... Oh, really? Yeah, Blackpink. Really? Yeah. All right. We couldn't ignore this. A lot of stuff that we could talk about, but major decisions, Supreme Court affirmative action. We definitely want to get into this, but Tommy, for folks that may not be super caught up, you want to do a quick rundown of what it is that we're commenting on? Yes, I can do that. So the Supreme Court dropped a decision that we've been anticipating for a while. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is surprising, but the Supreme Court basically ruled, the majority ruled 63 that race-conscious emissions processes are against the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And thus, moving forward, race-conscious emissions processes no longer will be allowed. This lawsuit was brought by a group called Students for Fair Emissions. They sued two universities, one public, one private. private. Harvard University was a private university in North Carolina being the public university. And the decision after it landed, while it was not a surprise, I think, has gone a lot of reactions. Yeah. And as Asian American leaders who have been in this education space for a while, I think we've all had actually very similar types of experiences mm -hmm. coming out of this. Yeah. And I'm just going to name that the three of us that are pretty aligned in our view of, around yes. this issue. Very. But as we've talked about, Asian Americans are not a monolith. And so I want to name that. The Supreme Court's decision rejects 40 years of precedence on race-conscious emissions policies in mm -hmm. universities. And for Asian Americans in our space, this has been really painful. I'm yeah. gonna name specifically why it's been very painful. And I think this is where I wanna dive into. I've had experiences over the last week where black colleagues and Latino colleagues have asked me, Tommy, where do you stand on this issue? And it took me by such a surprise because yeah. I've been pretty clear about this issue. I've written about this publicly. Yeah. 
I believe that race conscious admissions has a place in 2023 in America. I think it's still important. Yet, colleagues of mine have asked this question. And while my response to them isn't surprising, the fact that they asked has taken me aback. And a number of Asian American friends have also had very similar experiences. And I think that's why it's so important for us to talk about this. So I think a big part of that, and we should just name it out in the open, is that in the coverage of the decision, Asians have been used very as a wedge between communities of color and white people. And there's this impression, if you just are following major media, there's this impression that the plaintiffs in this case were Asian Americans, not true that the folks celebrating this decision are predominantly Asian Americans, also not true. Again, perpetuating the model minority myth. In fact, almost 70% of Asian Americans support affirmative action. And so- Would you say used as a wedge? But there are, I think this is the part that's been most disheartening for me, that there are so many Asian Americans who are willingly stepping in as that. But we say so many, but it's not that many. How many people of a certain type do you need to create a media story? Yeah, I believe there was right? one young man yeah. that was trumpeted, right? Yeah, and Around. he was he wasn't this is his reaction. But like, what I can't remember the names. But there's a couple groups that are like. But I think the point is the Asian community is not a monolith. Just like in every other ethnic community, there are Asian conservative groups just like there are black conservative groups, just like there are Latinx conservative groups. But I think what Tommy was getting into is that there are a lot of folks, non-Asian folks, who still perceive that the majority, if not all, this whole like Asians as monolith, we all are against affirmative action. Like that, I think, is what's painful. Yeah. I think it's important to name for our audience that Asians were not part of this lawsuit. We were not the plaintiffs in this lawsuit. The plaintiff was a group called Students for Fair Emissions. It is an organization. It's led by a gentleman named Edward Bloom. He is a white conservative man. He's challenged affirmative actions and voters' rights for a number of decades. No Asian Americans testified in in the Harvard trial. In fact, no students at all testified in support of this organization. Yep. And so I do think like it's important that some of these facts are named because the narrative isn't yep. this. The narrative is Asian Americans are coming out in clear support of the Supreme Court's decision. Sure. And that's this just is not, true. not the it's case. Not true. It's yeah. Yeah. And I think this is part of why we wanted to speak on this a little bit is But the reality is, to your point, we do know people in our personal circles, in our professional circles, Asian folks who are not caught up and they don't know all the facts. And so they're asking questions. And I think part of what's also damaging about this, the media coverage of this and what is being kind of shared in more sort of general circles is it continues to perpetuate this idea that the only college that Asian kids are trying to go to is Harvard, which is fucking wild to me. Right. It's like, good case. Right. Good point. Right. I was sharing with y'all earlier. I know more Asian kids who went to El Camino college or Cal State Long Beach 
in California, then went to Harvard. And so this idea that all Asian kids are only trying to get into just three or four Ivy League schools is just a fantasy land that doesn't reflect real life in any type of way, but is a powerful story chip that some people are using to advance this very stupid but very harmful agenda, you know? We are all part of networks. We're all part of affinity spaces. And what has been very affirming is the Supreme Court decision has been so disappointing, so painful, that it's another rallying cry. It's another rallying cry for folks in our communities and spaces that we're in. Because I think about the world we want to be, right? The world we want our young people to be in. And I will say to Asian American parents who may be questioning whether this is a good decision or not, if your child is blessed enough to go to Harvard, do you want your child to go to Harvard and be around a group of folks who had exactly the same sort of lived experiences your child has? Right. That is not helpful to your child. Right. And I will do. And I've also heard Asian American parents who are very upset about this decision because they're like, yes, my child is blessed enough to be a Harvard. Yeah. And I want them to be going to Harvard now, not the Harvard potentially in the future. Yeah. I want my child to have a very rich experience with uh, with people who have had very different sorts of lived experiences because that's what the world is. So I've also heard parents name that. I am also very frustrated at the way Harvard has handled this. I think they should not be left off the hook because some of the information that came out because of these lawsuits are also very disconcerting. Like the generalization that Asian Americans don't have personalities yeah. and the data around Asian American applicants, that's disconcerting. You know, like, yeah. That's worth a discussion. Some of the information that's come out and there was a, was it a New Yorker article about this mm-hmm. because Harvard admissions processes have been analyzed for decades yeah. and USDOE has been looking at the Harvard's admissions processes for many, many years. Yeah. And, and, and there was a recent piece that came out with yeah. some very disconcerting information about USDOE employees and Harvard admission officers making jokes about Asian applicants. There's just so many layers to it. But I feel like ultimately the bottom line is we continue to live and operate in a society and an education system where our elite high schools and elite colleges and universities do not represent the rich diversity that live in this country and internationally. Right. That's a problem. Here's a piece of the conversation that I've been having with some folks that we should name. is So, yes, Harvard is racist, point blank, period. That would be shocking to no one. And I think the lack of humanity that the system has shown Asian American applicants is the same lack of humanity that is also shown to other applicants of color, but just skewing to different stereotypes. And so I think the argument is still the same. There are a lot of Asian parents, particularly, who are like, I don't want my kid to be viewed this way 
or I don't want my kid to just be seen as a score without a personality or without anything else. And it's like, yeah, exactly. And the only applicants typically who get to be seen as a more holistic being are white kids, right? Black applicants, they're not seen more holistically beyond X, Y, and Z data points. Latinx applicants, Asian applicants, right? So fill in the blank. So I feel like we all are suffering from the same phenomena, but they're just manifesting in ways that are unique to different communities. And I've heard Asian people be like, see, there is data that supports the discrimination. I was like, yeah, but it's not discrimination isolated from all other forms of discrimination. Oh, that's right. Right. Let me ask y'all both this. As we shared when Tommy first started talking on this topic, we are aligned in our support for the affirmative action policy. And in our space, professionally, let's be real, we are kind of like in an Asian liberal progressive echo chamber of sorts. But there are folks who listen to this podcast, people that are maybe in our professional circles, but more likely in maybe some personal circles who are not necessarily super conservative, but are more moderate or people not in education or who don't keep up with the latest around stuff like this. And so the question I want to ask y'all is what is your advice for folks that are maybe on the fence who are trying to understand how should I feel about this? What do I really need to kind of index on to really make sense of what's happening? How do I make sense of this? I am a interpersonal learner. And so I always tend towards ask the people you know and you trust because if you ask enough people, you'll find people that have, if not like completely disparate opinions, you'll find a range of opinions. Sure. And so talk to the people you know and trust first and get their take on it. I feel like that's the place to start because that'll give you ammunition for what you want to learn more about. Mm-hmm. And then you can go to people that are maybe experts or literature sure. or whatever. But that's to me the easing into the pool is, is at least talk to people that you know and trust to get a sense of nuance. I would say a couple of things. I think number one, really dive into the case itself and some of the arguments in the case. I think in addition, take a look at some of the articles that have been written about the lawsuit. So earlier I talked about this New Yorker article. It's titled The Secret Joke at the Heart of the Harvard Affirmative Action Case. And Mm -hmm. really it is an article that's stunning because it talks about a federal U.S. Department of Education official who was joking with a missions officer, with the missions department at Harvard, about the general attitude towards Asian American applicants. And it's very, very disconcerting. So I think that's one thing. I think some of the polling data around the Asian Americans and their support of affirmative action or race-conscious Emissions processes is also interesting because depending on what ecosystem you're in, you may be like, you're, yeah. you're obviously overrepresented in right. a, a particular perspective, but some of the polling data that has been done, if you take a look at aapidata.com, you will see some of this data. Asian Americans are not a monolith. When broken down by ethnicity, you can see that there's wide disparity yeah. about what ethnic groups support race-conscious decisions. And so, for example, there was a poll done in 2022. The question in the poll was, 
Do you favor or oppose affirmative action programs designed to help Black people, women, and other minorities get better access to higher education? Koreans, 82% favor. Chinese, 59%. Right. That's a pretty wide yeah, yeah. range. And this is 1,564 respondents. Right. This is not like yeah, calling up on a straw poll, 300 people are responding. No, there's a critical mass of people right. who have weighed in on this. And I think one of the things that a lot of Asian Americans whose ancestry or their immigration was post-1960s, they yeah. don't realize affirmative action was critically important to making sure Asian Americans were represented yes. in higher ed. Yep. One thing I would love to just tell our audience, by the time this episode drops, there's a group of Asian American educators from all across the country who have all co-written a letter. And the letter is titled, We Support Affirmative Action and Believe in Race-Conscious Submissions. And we'll drop it in our episode information. Yeah. But it, inside are a number of links to articles and citations that we have been talking about. And That's so right. if listeners want to go back to the data they'll be able to see it when i ask y'all like what should we do the response particularly with the response that tommy gave i'm like come on tommy can't be like you should read more articles like i mean that works for a certain crowd of asian people but a lot of asian people are like no i don't want to read more shit i'm listening so i don't have to read <laughs> tommy's really like you should dive into academia yeah and- he's like you should look at this data report and I'm like, no, some people are listening to us, so they don't have to read. Dude, yo, do, Albert, do I need to voice over the data for you? No, Please investigate I'm just the Pew Research. <laughs> so that does it for this episode of the Miss Education Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for streaming. Thank you for downloading. Till next time. Ooh.